0: All you have to do is enumerate exactly the way you don't feel at home in the world. To say exactly how you don't belong. And the moment you've uttered the exact dimensionality of your exile, you're already taking the path back to the way, back to the place you should be. You're already on your way home. Those words from poet and philosopher David White might just encapsulate everything that I'd hoped to say this morning. To have a sense of belonging is to be human, and with that, with that knowing of belonging, we also contact the knowing of not belonging. And what David White says is that embedded in the very knowing of not belonging is in fact the pathway back to belonging and back to home. If he's right, friends, we are already on the pathway to the kind of belonging that we seek here in this congregation, here in Unitarian Universalism, here in this wider faith, and I'd argue here in this wider world. Perhaps this dance of centering and decentering is not that different from the movement of belonging to not belonging and back again. To know that it is not present is to create the path toward its presence. But before we get to belonging, before we find our way home, let's back up a bit. How did we get here, anyway? A few months ago, the Reverend Mitra Ranama came to visit with some of us clergy and congregational leaders from around the Twin Cities. I think maybe some of you might have been there that evening. Mitra is the editor of a book called Centering, Navigating Race, Power, and Authenticity in Ministry. In her presentation and conversation with us, she shared several definitions of the term centering, one of which has grabbed my attention and not let go. Architecturally, she told us, centering is the structure that's put in place to hold something up, something like a roof, a dome, an arch, to hold something up while it's being built. Let me say that again. The centering... Is is what is put in place to hold something up while it's being built. That same centering is later removed because it's no longer needed. In recent years, we've come to hear the term decentering, particularly when it's applied to race, when it's applied to whiteness, and the full phrase decentering whiteness is one that many of us here and more or less instantly feel in our bodies in some visceral understanding, some visceral way. Ah yes, we might nod in our serious and earnest way. Ah yes, some of us nod in joyful and eager anticipation. Ah yes, some of us nod in uncertainty and perhaps even fear. Surely, if we are committed to racial justice, if we are committed to undoing racism in our communities, in our church, in our world, then of course we do not want to center whiteness. Who could argue with that? But what then do we want to center? It turns out that that question is much more complicated, at least it is for me, and I hope for you too, if not now, then hopefully by the time I'm done with this talk. And what of belonging? How do centering, decentering, and belonging fit together? Do they? I want to share with you three stories, each of which I think illuminates some aspect of this question. Back in May, I had the opportunity to sit a three and a half day silent meditation retreat with the Common Ground Meditation Center. How many of you have sat a silent meditation retreat of any duration? A handful, right? So you kind of, you know, you know the drill, you know the story. Like many Buddhist retreats, this retreat was conducted in what is called noble silence. What that meant is that after dinner on our first night, we did not speak to each other, not to each other, not to ourselves, and we took the added step of avoiding eye contact. Basically, our silence extended beyond our voices to any form of intentional communication with the other 20-some people who are on retreat. Now obviously we could speak in the event of an emergency if we needed to from one of the volunteer jobs that we were doing, but the intent of the practice was to remove as much as humanly possible of our everyday lives so that we could be in a state of continuous presence, of continuous mindfulness and meditation, at least as continuous as possible. So 20-some people, backgrounds not unlike ours here in this room, were sitting there, and mid-morning on that first day, I had this sudden awareness that I was in a totally different culture to what I was used to. I had this deep sense that I was a visitor in someone else's religious culture and practice. Now, it wasn't any single thing that anyone did, and it certainly wasn't something that someone said but I was very deeply aware that I wasn't in my religious home anymore, that I was visiting someone else's and that I didn't quite know all the rules, even though I had sat with common ground many times, many years ago, and wasn't exactly a foreigner at all. Friends, that is the power of culture. Even in a room of total silence, Culture is so powerful that it can tell us implicitly when we don't know the rules, when we might be accidentally infringing on a community's norms. Culture can tell us silently when we don't belong. But as I sat there, I realized that it wasn't so much that I didn't belong as it was that my, myself, that person that I think I am and that's reinforced by my day-to-day life, that self was being decentered; it was being pushed aside. Being in a different religious culture was part of it, but so was having everything else stripped away. All of the things that I might distract myself with, work, phone, people, conversation, pretty much everything was stripped away. And what I was left with was myself. Not the everyday me, but rather this mind, this heart that's present even when everything else falls away. It turns out that there's a lot more happening here than I generally attend to on an everyday basis. It turns out that being decentered made room for more. If one definition of centering is the thing that holds up a structure while it's being built, Another perspective on centering views it as the practice of making something the focus of attention. I raise up this aspect of centering because I suspect that some of us, perhaps many of us, live lives in which we are relatively centered. Now I should note that I say those words with a lot of male, cisgendered class privilege. I can talk about my life being one in which I'm centered because of the social location that I inhabit. I know that many others do not feel centered at all as they move through the world. But as I look around this room, I suspect that a fair number of you move through the world with some degree of ease, some degree of comfort. That every moment isn't much of a struggle and that the spaces that you move through feel comfortable to you. When our identities are centered, we often feel a sense of safety, a sense that we belong. I raise this definition because a couple of years back I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and to Palestine with a multi-faith inter-religious group from United Theological Seminary. And while there I had two experiences, less than 24 hours apart, of having an aspect of my identity centered in a fairly radical way that was in one instance deeply uncomfortable and in the other deeply affirming. The discomfort started when I landed in Jerusalem. As I left the plane at the top of the jetway, I was stopped by a security officer who asked where I was coming from, why I was there, was it my first time in Israel. I answered, and he stepped aside to let me continue toward baggage claim and border control. And in my peripheral vision, I saw him say something into a phone or a radio and had an inkling that things might not go well. After grabbing my bags, I walked up to a border control line and handed my passport to the person in the booth. She looked at my photo, she looked back at me, and then asked me two questions, and by the end of those questions, I knew that I was in trouble. Her first question What is your father's full name? Heart sinking, I answered. Her second question, what was his father's full name? Then she looked at me, asked a perfunctory question about my purpose there, which we both knew she wasn't interested in. And then, keeping my passport, directed me to an enclosure against the back wall with some chairs, telling me to wait and that someone would come for me. I walked over to find about 15 other men and women, most of whom were brown and all of whom I quickly realized were Muslim. You see, her question about the names in my family revealed to her that I have my father's name as my middle name and that he had his father's name as his middle name. It's a tradition in Muslim families, largely unknown, unless, of course, one is trying to identify Muslims. Eight hours later, I was handed my passport and allowed to depart the airport. But not before a couple rounds of questioning, including a couple interrogations with a good cop, bad cop pair, one who seemed to have stepped out of a J Crew ad, the other appearing to have been sent by Central Casting in a call for large, menacing, and with a Russian accent. So friends, it was with some trepidation that I was out walking the streets around our hotel at 4.30 the next morning. I was jet-lagged out of my mind, and I was desperately seeking a cup of coffee. It turns out that Jerusalem, or at least the area that we stayed in, doesn't get up early. And as I walked, finding myself in a more residential neighborhood, I couldn't help but wonder if some other early riser was going to see me walking and call the authorities. I mean, I'd just been told pretty clearly that in the eyes of the state, I was suspicious, right? But armed with the privilege and the arrogance of knowing that I had an American passport in my pocket, and frankly, really wanting a cup of coffee, I pressed on and soon came upon a small triangular corner that held a couple of shops. One looked like a mini supermarket, but was closed, but the other looked like a cafe, and its door was a crack open. I knocked, poked my head in, and saw a big guy behind the counter prepping pastries to go into the oven. He looked up at me, and then with a huge smile on his face, asks, how is India? Come in! (laughs) Two instances, two instances less than 24 hours apart, in which both sides of my religious and ethnic identity were deeply seen and deeply centered. One alarming and really uncomfortable, the other deeply welcoming and affirming. I went to that cafe every day for the rest of the time that we were in Jerusalem. Knowing that I had been seen, that I had been welcomed, it became a little oasis of belonging for me. Perhaps it isn't centering that is or isn't bad. Perhaps it's the purpose, the intent, the energy that we bring to it. Do we center to exclude and draw the circle inwards? Or do we center in ways that foster a sense of safety, of being seen, of belonging? Are we centering to draw the circle wider? The last story I want to share is a story about how the Reverend Meg Riley, a colleague and a friend, over a cup of coffee asked me a question that both centered and decentered me in a way that profoundly changed my life. I had just transitioned to working for a philanthropic collaborative that supported work at the intersection of spiritual practice and social transformation. We talked about that field as a field of transformative social change, and in general believed that to create change out in the world, we needed to also foster different ways of being, different ways of showing up in ourselves and with each other, and believed that spiritually rooted practices applied in secular contexts might be a pathway toward doing that. That idea might sound kind of familiar to some of you. I had a hunch that we were basically recreating a lot of what faith communities already knew a lot about. And Meg and I had gotten to talking because she was the new minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship and was curious about what I'd learned during my tenure at the Progressive Technology Project. Long story short, we had a lot of meetings over coffee at the Blue Moon Cafe on Lake Street, and our conversations were wide-ranging, deep, and really quite wonderful. Folks in the cafe probably saw the sparks and the sparkles and the rainbows swirling around our table as we talked. It was, it was that kind of conversation. And so one day, Meg and I were starting to wrap up a conversation when she paused and asked, so when are we going to see you in a seminary classroom? Because you sure seem to be there already. Inside, I freaked out. But I think I managed to smile and awkwardly deflect and sort of keep it together. You see, with that question, Meg had unknowingly centered an opening, had unknowingly created an opening into which I could speak out loud a longing that was growing in my heart, a longing to embark on the path toward ministry. I didn't say it that way. I didn't say it that day. But the space had been created. And here's why that mattered. Meg's question did what it did because of three things that I think are important when we talk about belonging, centering, and decentering. Meg had invited me into a space of belonging. Our conversations, the relationship that we'd developed, all of it added up to a feeling of being at home. And that sense of belonging meant that when she asked me that question, it was a moment of profound centering for me. She was seeing me, all of me, even parts that I thought were hidden. And what that meant was that in that place of belonging, of being seen and centered, I was safe enough to be decentered. I could move aside all the objections in my mind and make space for the more that was in my heart, the more that has brought me to this moment that has brought me here today. Meg's question drew the circle wider, not in a naive, we're all the same sort of way, but in a deeply personal, I see you. I want you to know that you're welcome here sort of way. In a way, her question made space for the centering, reach back to that architectural term, it made space for the centering my stuff, what I thought I needed to hold me up It made space for that to be set aside so that more could come forth. Let me say that again. In that space of welcome and belonging, in that space of being seen, Meg's question made space for me to put aside my stuff, the stuff that I thought I needed to hold me up so that more could come forth. Friends, the moment that we start to articulate the ways that we don't belong is the moment that we start on the pathway toward belonging. And that's a moment that we're in here in our wider movement. We are longing for more. What I think is true, and I know not everyone sees it this way, but what I believe to be true is that when we talk about decentering whiteness in our lives and in our communities, when I talk about decentering whiteness in our lives and in our communities, I'm not at all suggesting that we put some other culture at the center. We are already entirely too multicultural for that. No, when I talk about centering and decentering, I'm talking about the movement toward belonging, where centering and decentering are the expression of our naming the ways that we haven't belonged the ways we haven't been centered enough to start to find our way toward a place where we can set aside where we can decenter the structural and architectural centering that we think holds us up friends it is time to remove the centering whatever was put in place while all of this was being built i don't think we need it anymore whether that be a cultural expression that's rooted in whiteness, or gender expression grounded in patriarchy, or an economy grounded in extraction and exploitation of people and the earth, or any of the other bits of centering that are getting in the way of the more that is already here. There is a dance of centering and decentering, a song that is longing to be sung. I can feel it. I know that many of you can feel it too. We are trying to learn the steps even while we're fumbling for the next notes, but we are doing it, we will do it, together. May it be so.